You're listening to a sermon from St. John's Anglican in Cranbourne. To find out more about us, head to cranbourneanglican.org.au. I wonder who knows when this church was first built. Now, just a hands up if you've got an idea of when this church was first built, if your name's not Sam Bleeby. Whoa, it's pretty close. So this church was first built in 1864. Here's a hint. There's a cheat sheet right over there. Right, 1864, which means that it is roughly, I think, 100 and... How, how many years is that? 160, 170? That's a long time. This is a celebration of God's faithfulness. This church, it has a historic legacy in our community. We've been here for a long time. We have generations of families worshipping together, not just mums and mums and dads and kids. We've got grandparents and the kids of the grandparents and the kids of their, their children worshipping all together. This is a testament to God's faithfulness. And around 160 years on, God is continuing to be faithful. 160 years on, God is continuing to save people and to grow services and to plant new congregations. This place is a testament to God's faithfulness. And at the same time, this church faces a great threat. It's the same threat that occurs for any organization that lasts for that long because any organization that lasts for 150, 160, 170 years has a great threat of storing up pride in itself. Pride that we know how things are meant to work. We have the secret source. We've got the special ingredients. We know what to do. Just trust us. The way the Bible talks about pride is probably familiar to many of us. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We don't have to look very far to see that this is true, not only in our own lives, but culturally. I often think about Nokia. There's hands up here who at one time has owned a Nokia phone. Okay, keep your hand up if you still have a Nokia phone as your current phone. Good on you, Mitch. Good on you. In 2007, 50% of all phones on the market were Nokia phones. That means roughly half of all phones. In 2013, that number was 3%. Why? Because Nokia is like, hey, we've got the secret sauce. We've got all the market share. We don't need to learn. We don't need to change. We don't need a smartphone. That's never going to catch on. Nokia has faced incredible, debilitating problems because of a result of their pride. Or what about Blockbuster? This was a favorite of my family. On Friday nights, we'd go and get fish and chips, but the thing that we were really looking forward to was going into Blockbuster and picking a movie. Blockbuster was everywhere. Every town had a Blockbuster, and every Friday or Saturday when you'd go in, it was full of people choosing a movie to take home and watch with the family. Well, in the year 2000, Blockbuster had a small startup company come to them and say, hey, we'd like to be bought by you. We think we could have some great partnership. And Blockbuster said, no, we, don't, we have no need of you, Netflix. No need whatsoever. This whole thing of watching movies online, that will never catch on. Well, 10 years after that, Blockbuster went bankrupt 
And Netflix is currently valued at $11 billion. Pride goes before a fall. And if pride goes before a fall in just general organizations, how much greater is the threat for a church of thinking that we know how things are meant to work? You see, not only does pride go before a fall, in fact, this is what the book of James says when it comes to pride. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And so if we find ourselves in a place where we're storing up pride for ourselves in our accomplishments and our achievements, we're actually in opposition to God. That is a dangerous place for a church. It is a dangerous place when a church starts to feel pleased with itself, when a church starts to feel pleased with its own growth, with its own success, with its own wins. That is a dangerous place for a church. And for a church that has existed for 160 years, it's something that we have to grapple with. And the great thing is that Matthew chapter 4 holds, I think, a great antidote for our own pride. Because Matthew chapter 4 is all about new beginnings, but they're not cloudy, airy, vague new beginnings. These are hard-won truths. So let's dive in and see what Jesus might have to say to us. Here's the context. Jesus has just come out of the desert where he's experienced 30 days and 30 nights of temptation. He's come out, he's not given into temptation, and he retreats into Galilee. This is what it says in Matthew 4. But what happened is John has been arrested. John the Baptist has been arrested. And so Jesus goes, this, this seems like a bit of a sign. Because immediately after this, things start happening. So Jesus hears that John has been arrested and he withdraws to Galilee. Not just Galilee, but he leaves Nazareth and makes his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali. Now this is important because this is a huge change. It says he leaves Nazareth, but what it really is saying, he leaves leaves. Like he's not coming back leaves. Like he's never calling Nazareth home again leaves. This is a new beginning. This is a change. This is a difference. And so he, st- he moves into Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali. We've got a little map here for you. So you can see in the little red uh, bolded text in the middle of the yellow bolded desert, uh, what well, seems like a desert, is Nazareth. And he makes his way up to the top of the Sea of Galilee. So he makes a big change. And what's happening here is that Matthew is intentionally drawing together the new beginning that Jesus is undertaking, the new thing that's happening with the old beginning. See, the Bible isn't just multiple chapters telling multiple stories. It's one great big story. And Matthew is trying to draw, say, hey, this thing that's happening now with Jesus is exactly what the Old Testament was pointing towards. There's not a difference, a division in the stories. This is what Matthew writes. This took place so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. We go next slide. The land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea. Just a bit slow. Go back a couple. One more. There we go. On the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Next slide. The people who sat in darkness had seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region, the shadow of death, light has dawned. Just pause there. So 
Matthew is specifically saying, hey, this thing that's just taken place is linked with the prophecy of old from the book of Isaiah. This was predicted, this movement of Jesus, because Jesus is the great light. He's going to sit in the shadow of death in the, 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 um, the Galilee of the Gentiles, and he's going to proclaim a message that will be like light. So what is the message? Well, next slide. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of, of heaven has come near. The kingdom of God has come near. God is not far. God is not distant. God is not far away. His kingdom has come near. The message of Jesus was simple. And here's why I say that Matthew 4 is an antidote to our own spiritual pride because Matthew 4, at the center of this chapter, Jesus starts talking about repentance. Jesus starts talking about repentance because Jesus knows who people are. He knows that people are made in the image of God, that they're wonderfully made, that they're creative, they're, they're, they're loved by God, but also that they're sinners. And sinners need to repent and return to God. That we're not just perfect, we've actually fallen away from God and need to return to Him. Jesus knows who we are, and so He issues this invitation. Sometimes we can read this as a threat. Repent for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven has come near or else. But actually it's an invitation. It's saying, hey, the kingdom of God has come near to you who are far from the kingdom. Turn around. The idea of repentance in the New Testament is one of turning around, of doing a 180 and saying, hey, I was going that way, but now I'm going this way. I was going away from God, and now I'm going towards God. And so we might ask, well, what, what actually is repentance? What does repentance look like? Well, I think repentance is two things happening in a person. Repentance is an internal conviction that we feel as a result of recognizing our own sin, our own brokenness, our own failings, fueled by the Holy Spirit, which leads to change, fueled by the Holy Spirit. It's not simply feeling bad about our sin or feeling sorry or feeling upset or feeling grieved. It's that feeling which actually leads to change. It's not enough to just say, I'm sorry. It's sorry that actually leads. I've got kids. They love saying sorry to one another. It's actually a game. They, they think it's incredible saying sorry to one another. And then they just do the thing again and again and again. It's infuriating. That's not what repentance is. Repentance is sorry, fueled by those emotions, which actually leads to change. It's kind of like this. I once heard the story of a pastor who was meeting with a younger Christian who kept, this, kept saying this prayer. He said a prayer something like, God, would you clean the cobwebs of my life out? Would you, would you just fix things out? Would you clean me? And you know, it's a fine prayer. But in the middle of the prayer one day after he'd been praying this prayer for months and months and months, the pastor stopped as he started that prayer and said, No, God, kill the spider. Don't just clean it. Remove the thing. Change his life. It's not just feeling sorry. It's change. Because here's the thing. It's easy to feel proud when you forget you need God. It's hard to forget you need God when you, are, when you know your need for God, when you're repenting. It's hard to feel proud, pride when you repent. Because repentance is all about knowing that I desperately need God. I need Him so much. It's hard to feel pride 
every major movement of God has had repentance at the heart. In the Old Testament, when God has moved and people have turned back to God, repentance has been the heart of their actions. In the New Testament, when people have repented, it's been at the heart of God's revival. Just, just take two examples. So this is uh, from the book of Acts chapter 2. Peter's first sermon, Pentecost has happened, the Holy Spirit has descended, Peter's preached his first message, and the response is, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? They were cut to the heart. What should we do? What does Peter say? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then again in Acts 19. So the, the things are happening in Ephesus, which is where they were. Uh, the fear of the Lord has descended. And what's their response to the message of good news? Everyone was awestruck and the name of the Lord Jesus was praised. Next slide. Many of those who became believers confessed and disclosed their practices. What were they disclosing? Probably everyday sins, right? This is what they disclosed. A number of those who practiced magic collected their books and burned them publicly. And when the value of these books was calculated, it was found to come to 50,000 silver coins, which is around 50,000 days' wages. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of change. Internal conviction fueled by the Spirit, which leads to actual change. Which comes to this truth. A church that refuses to repent is a powerless church. A church that has no need of repentance has no power because repentance is just an acknowledgement that we desperately need God. A church that refuses to repent has no need for God. And we can keep doing the church thing. I'm not saying this is necessarily true of St. John's, but it's a threat. We can keep doing the church thing without any need of God. We can gather and meet. We can, see, we can have sermons. We can pray prayers. But nothing will change. No people will be saved. No people will be changed because the power of a church comes not from us, but from God alone. It comes from his people falling on their knees and saying, God, we desperately need you. It doesn't come from us. The power in a church doesn't come from Sam. It doesn't come from Jimmy. It comes from God alone. If we refuse to say, God, I need you, God will just use someone else. God will use another church to save souls. He won't use proud churches. Our power comes from him alone. And so Jesus goes around preaching this simple message, repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near. And as he does so, he doesn't just do so alone. He starts to gather a team around himself. And I find it interesting who he draws into his team. Because they're not strong, and they're not smart, and they're not powerful, and they're not influential. They're just some average Joes hanging out in a boat, drawing in fish. And Jesus comes along, and you think, well, what must he be saying to them? For them to immediately come. And jump on his team. We can, read, we can read it in the next passage. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Next slide. And as he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. 
What do they do? Immediately, they leave the boat and their father and followed him. There's been a lot of discussion around what's happening in this passage because it seems odd, almost incredible, that Jesus simply says, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And their response is, all right, everything down, let's go. You can imagine your own workplace, right? Everyone's on the tools, doing a job. They're sitting at their desk, typing away. All of a sudden, Jesus comes in and says, hey, come and follow me. Computers don't even get turned off. Everyone just ups, downs tools and leaves. Feels incredible. So what's going on in the passage? Well, I think Matthew is trying to draw our attention to at least two things. One is that this is a moment of change. In the same way that Jesus has left Nazareth, the first disciples are leaving their livelihoods. This is a chapter of leaving. Just as Jesus leaves Nazareth never again to call it home, they're leaving their livelihoods. There is a change, a distinctive change, but I think Matthew also presents it this way, to hold up a mirror to us, to hold up a mirror to anyone who would read, saying this, these are the first people that Jesus called. This is the story of, of John. This is the story of Andrew and Peter. Look at what they did. When they heard Jesus invite them to come and follow him, they left everything. What do you say? What do you say when Jesus issues us the same invitation to come and follow him? It's a mirror. Because you look at what they left behind. They left their boat. They left their fish. They left their net. They left their job. They left their home. In the case, James and John, they leave their father. They leave their family. They leave everything that they had loyalty to to follow Jesus. What about us? What about our hearts? When Jesus issues us the same invitation, what makes us want to say no? Because I think the truth of repentance isn't just that repentance is about our sin. Isn't just about the things that we've done that we know we shouldn't have done. I think the heart of repentance is working out what are the good things that God has given us that we've made God. Because it wasn't just sin that the disciples left behind, it was their lives, the thing that they built their lives around, their loyalties to. When Jesus says, come and follow me, he's saying, I've got to be number one. I'm the king. Everything else comes second. And so the question for us is, what do you think comes first in your life? Maybe it's family. Maybe it's friendship. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's the dream of a house. Maybe it's security. What is that thing that in your heart you know you find it most hard to leave if Jesus says, come and follow me? That is the heart of our repentance. That is the area of our lives in which we call God, not necessarily to abandon them. I'm not calling people to abandon their families and their finances and their homes, but abandon the hold they have on our hearts. I love my wife and my kids, but Jesus is number one. I would desperately love to own a house one day, but Jesus is number one. I would love to be secure one day, but Jesus is number one. And if Jesus is not number one, what is? That's where we need to come to him in repentance and say, God, change my heart. I need you. 
So what do we do? What do we do when we fail? What do we do when we fall short of what Jesus invites us into? What do we do when we succeed and get trapped by turning a good thing into a God thing? Well, I think we hear the same words that Jesus issued in Matthew chapter 4. Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Come and follow me. Because the thing that will preserve this church 160 years into the future is not us, it's Jesus. The thing that will preserve our new evening service is not us, it's Jesus. The thing that will change people and draw more people into the kingdom is not us, it's Jesus. It's Jesus, it always has been Jesus, it always will be Jesus. And so will we actually follow him? That's the critical question for St. John's. As we celebrate a commissioning, as we celebrate and thank God for 160 years this year, will we continue to follow Jesus? Will we continue saying yes to him? So what I want to do right now is to invite us to sit and reflect upon that question. What is Jesus calling you to put second in order to follow him? What gets in the way of saying yes to that invitation to come and follow I'm going to give us one to two minutes of silence to sit in our seats, to reflect, and to ask God, God, reveal this to me. Help me. I need you. And after about two minutes, I'm going to pray for us. So let's just sit in silence and sit with the Lord. we've heard it said this morning the people were in great darkness but you are the great light so God whether we feel we're in darkness or not would you be our light would you lead us God would you show us all the areas of our hearts and lives in which we've made something other than you number one in the same way that the first apostles, the first disciples the first members of Jesus' team immediately left everything to follow you. God, would you give us the same heart to say yes to you where you call us, where it's uncomfortable, 
where it's difficult, God, would you give us a heart to see that following you is where all the joy will be in our life. God, would you help us, protect us from pride, protect this church, protect this people, and where we have stored up pride in ourselves. God, would you convict us of sin and lead us to change. May our response to your call always be yes. Wherever you call, whenever you call. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.